You're tuned in to Positively Terrible. I'm producer Dan, and each week my buddy Scott and I discuss surviving and thriving after trauma. It's a journey that started when Scott, his wife's fiance, and her boyfriend walked into a bar. This week's decent human being is Christine. She's got a fucked up story about the stigma of growing up with a facial difference. Settle in, my terrible listeners. Today's episode is going to be Positively Terrible. Scott. Hey, Dan. How you doing today? Man, I'm pretty good today. How are you? Uh, I'm doing all right. I mean, it's awfully early uh, here. I'm just woke up to do this. And I've said it before, though, this is one of my favorite things to wake up to do. I can always take a nap afterwards. <laughs> it's my Sunday. I would like to be sleeping in a little bit, but I, uh, I am, I'm very happy to get up to do, do something like this. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. I was, I was going to say, and, and I don't know what I'm doing with the rest of my day. Probably watching the Bears lose. What, 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 what's up with you today, Dan? Uh, instead of watching the Bears lose, which is usually my plan on a Sunday, <laughs> I am going with my daughter and my wife to the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. So if they want to be a sponsor of the show, uh, here I am. I'm welcome and I'm for sale. <laughs> uh, you are for sale. Thanks, Dan. Um... Well, have a good time today, and today we have got Christine with us. Christine, are, have you ever been to the Ringling Brothers Circus? I have. Many, many years ago, when I was a little girl, I went to the circus. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes. I, I do not remember ever going to the circus. I do remember going to Disney on ice once, I think it was. Um, it might have been, it, you know, was it Disney or Smurfs? You know what? That's not what we're here to talk about today. Uh, <laughs> Christine, thanks for joining us. What? Why don't you tell us what you're here to talk about? And Thank you so much for having me. So I'm here to talk about, you know, like, like Dan mentioned, growing up with the stigma of having a facial difference. I was born with a cleft lip and palate, which meant that I had multiple surgeries. I was bullied. It affected my personality, it affected my mental health, workplace discrimination, the whole thing. It affects my whole life, and it's a lifetime journey. So, you know, Scott and I are going to delve into it and talk a little more about it and just educate everyone. For sure. And that, that's a perfect lead in because I was going to ask you if you could kind of explain to our audience. I think a lot of people have familiarity with it, or at least the term, the, the cleft lip and cleft palate. But could you explain what that is? Sure, absolutely. So when the baby is born in the womb, I mean, not to get too scientific, we start out as two halves and we come together as a whole. So when a baby is born with a cleft, the upper lip and the upper palate never form together properly. In my case, it stayed open. And so as a result, um, you know, when your palate is closed, the food goes down your throat. In my case, because my palate was open, food would come out my nose. I couldn't breathe properly. And because my upper lip was open, it never properly closed. I couldn't eat. I couldn't talk. I couldn't breathe normally. My upper, I had no bone in the upper jaw. So it was just, you know, a hot mess. I mean, for lack of a better word. <laughs> so my first surgery was when I was about two months old. And that was just to be able to start to close the upper lip 
so I could nurse. I couldn't even nurse. I mean, you know, food, there was no way food would go down my throat, would come out my nose. Uh, there was risk of choking. My mother was always afraid that I would just, you know, choke to death because the food would go, would go down into my lungs. Yes. So it was a really big problem. And a lot of babies do suffer malnutrition and have the risk of, you know, dying because they can't nurse properly. So after that, there were many more surgeries to repair the lip, to close the palate so I could breathe normally, eat normally, and then the dental work to help with the teeth. And just, it's never ending. But I'll let you, I'll let you ask me some more questions. <laughs> sure. Thank you. That, that sounds, I, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine, um, especially from like the, your parents' point of view. And I have never, until we first spoke, I had never really considered like a cleft lip cleft palate i didn't really know what it was to that extent and yeah i didn't know that it had such medical significance to my brain it was the the only people i knew that uh had a cleft palate uh, you know they had a small scar on their lip and they were adults i didn't realize the medical significance and the danger that a child was in born oh, with yes. that condition mm -hmm. yeah exactly that's and that's what, what i was going to say so if you couldn't nurse when you were born, how did you, what, what was that like? How, how were you fed? And I mean, was it tubes? Was it, you know, and did you have to stay in the hospital? Uh, well, I mean, my mother was taught by the doctors how to feed me. It was either literally a teaspoon with formula because I couldn't obviously naturally breastfeed. So it was either a teaspoon with formula that she would have to just put in my mouth and try to get down my throat. Sometimes it's an eyedropper or a syringe until I had the surgery to at least close the lip and at least, you know, started to kind of give some direction. Nowadays, they have special nipples that parents can put on the bottles to help that basically don't require suction. They're kind of a reverse suction nipple. And nowadays also there's so much more medical technology that the babies don't need surgery so young. They use what's called a NAM taping, which is basically where they tape the upper lip close to bring it together. And they do that basically the day that they're born or a couple of days after. So it reduces the need for surgery. It increases the healing process. But yeah, for me, it was just a matter of either a syringe for the formula or a teaspoon and just a lot of patience and a lot of time. How many kids are in your family and what number are you? I have a younger sister, so I'm the older one. My sister is four years younger than me and she does not have a cleft lip and palate. I can imagine it, first firstborn kid to a family, that's got to be a very scary way to start. It was very difficult. My father often told me how when you know I was born, he was in a complete panic and he didn't know what to do. And, you know, he's of the generation. He was born in the 30s. So he's of the generation where everything was perfect and babies weren't born with, you know, birth defects. And so he was in a complete panic. My mother was always the stoic one and the, I guess, the rock of the family. And her attitude was, well, you know, she's healthy. She's breathing. She's crying. You know, she's healthy. She asked the doctors, can this be fixed and that term can this be fixed was both a blessing and a curse to me it became kind of like something that I hated but also it was my mother's way of coping and advocating for me so she always had the attitude okay this can be fixed we can work with it you know she's a healthy baby you know let's go forward but my father was still in, in a complete panic and you know just it was their nature so yeah it was very scary for them and of course you know having my sister I think you know four years later there was always that concern was this going to happen again yeah and I just kind of want to say that 
I think part of the importance of someone like you talking about this and telling your story is about the language that you use. Because you said, like, being fixed is a blessing and a curse. I can only imagine that when you're being told something needs to be fixed, that especially as a child, the message you're hearing is, I am broken. There's, there's something wrong with me. Is that right? Absolutely. And that was how I felt very old. You know, from the first time I was aware that I was different and that I didn't look like the other children and I knew, you know, I was going to doctors every week, every month. I mean, by the time I was six years old, I already had three or four surgeries. Wow. So I had 20 surgeries throughout my life, the majority between two months and maybe when I was 13. So I always felt broken. I always felt that I was defective. And the doctors always said, oh, we're going to fix you. We're going to make you look like a model. We're going to make you look beautiful. The reality is I didn't want to look like a model. I just wanted to be normal. I just wanted to, you know, not get bullied and hit down in school and be called a monster. And I didn't care about looking beautiful. I just wanted to be, you know, myself and have a normal life. So, yeah, the term being fixed was very, uh, very negative for me because it made me feel and it really compounded that I was broken and even more defective than I already felt. It took a lot of work to get over that stigma of my, you know, that, that self-stigma of myself. Yeah. Is there a better way to talk about it? Is the, Do you have that language? Is is there a preferred language? I don't. Well, nowadays, I don't see it as a baby born with a cleft lip needs to be fixed. Even, you know, in the circles, the groups that I'm in, sometimes we say it's repaired. Uh, and the repair is a little bit easier, but even repaired indicates that, you know, there's something wrong and repair needs to be fixed. I just want to say that it just needs to be you know, operated on or it needs to be closed to close the gap so that it can be functional. And I just use medical terms just operated on. Because when you say operated on, it's, it doesn't sound as negative. It doesn't sound like, okay, sure. it needs to be repaired, fixed. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a moment ago, like from when from the time you realized that you were, and, and I'll use your word, quote unquote, different. Mm-hmm. When was that? And what feelings did that kind of bring up for you? It was probably when I was about, when I was really in kindergarten, which was about maybe five, six years old, you know, the kids would start to bully me. I remember um, I went to a Catholic school at first because you know, my family's Catholic and I had to go to speech therapy and that affected how much I was in school. I had to get out of school early. And that's when I knew I was different, being pulled out of school early in the day to go to speech therapy. Why, you know, I knew I had to go to speech therapy, but why I couldn't stay in, why I had to go to it, it was just too much for my six-year-old brain to handle. And that's when I first realized I was different, combined with going to all the doctors. And my mother always said, well, you know, you were just born this way. And that was a term that I used to, that I took on when kids would make fun of me or say, hey, what happened to your lip? I would kind of put my hands on my hips and very defiantly say, I was born this way. As you know, say, you're not going to talk to ask me anything more about it. And sure. that was also my defense mechanism. Uh, but deep inside that shame started to grow and it grew until literally I was in my uh, late 40s. And, you know, it was just a whole lifetime of shame. Wow. I- that's that is a very tough experience like tough is not the word <laughs> there's there's a lot stronger words that probably better reflect what i'm trying to say but uh i it just i i can't imagine i say that so much on the show um 
you know, and I can appreciate the that's the way I was born. But even as you're saying it, it, as you're hearing more and more that you're different, I'm sure that that message starts to lose meaning to even you, right? It does, because then at some point you just drown it out and you just, you know, become in denial and you just realize like, okay, I, I mean, for me, being told I was different, knowing that I needed all these surgeries, eventually I reached a point, I think it was somewhere around my teenage years, where I just pretended I was normal. My mother, you know, when I would come home with the stories about being bullied, my mother used to say, well, you know, let it roll off your back, ignore them, it's not true. And eventually, I learned the only, the best way to cope was to pretend I was normal, refuse to talk about my cleft, refuse to say anything about it, not listening to the bullies, ignore them completely, and just pretend I was normal. There was nothing wrong with me. Yeah, I had to go to doctors, just go do it and shut that part out. And what I later learned, and I like to tell everybody who asks, and even people I work with, is that denial was not a river in Egypt. And at some point <laughs> in my life, all of that denial came back, and it, you know, really just hit hard like a like a tidal wave. So I don't recommend living in a state of denial. Yeah. Did you have anyone to talk to at that when you were a child? Did you have a therapist, or did you know of anyone else with a cleft lip and palate? Unfortunately, I did not. I mean, I may have seen one or two other children with a cleft when I would have to go to like maybe not even the hospital at times. I went to the state medical board uh, to try to get approved for state medical uh, state funding. It wasn't even Medicare. It was you know, maybe like state funding. They would just go and see what the regular dentists or doctors were doing. Once in a while, I would see another child maybe with a cleft at different stages of their surgeries. We wouldn't talk to each other. We barely made eye contact. There was that, you know, same soap that you can feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I couldn't talk to my mother. I didn't feel comfortable enough. I never talked to her about my feelings or about the club beyond what was medically necessary. It's just, you know, hey, you're having another surgery. You're going to the doctor. That was it. It was a very contentious subject from my family growing up because there was a lot of financial strain involved in it so no I didn't have any mental health I didn't have any therapists or anybody to talk to I didn't have any friends that knew what I was going through and despite recommendations from my doctors you know based on reports that I've seen that my mother get mental health help for me at my young age they didn't believe it they my parents never believed in mental health they didn't see the value in it so I didn't get any help until I was really in my late uh, probably early 20s is the first time I got mental health help and even then it wasn't specifically for this I was still in that denial stage sure I I can understand that um what was you you, you've mentioned bullying a little bit what was that like was and and I, I guess my question here is to start with are we talking primarily verbal did did it escalate into any physical bullying too it was mostly verbal, but there were two occasions that I still remember as if it happened yesterday, even though it happened probably 40, at least 40, 45 years ago. Uh, two, two occasions that were physical. Uh, the, the physical part was, you know, in the playground, I was just standing on the side of the playground waiting for my mother to pick me up at the school. Uh, you know, didn't really have any friends. Uh, 
mm-hmm. didn't really play with anybody. And a couple of boys came over and they just looked at me and they said, you're so ugly, you shouldn't be living. And they tried to push me down some stairs. And fortunately, I grabbed onto the fence that I was standing near and they didn't see them pushing me down the stairs. They just seen them knocking me over. I ripped a pair of tights that I was wearing, scraped uh, up my knee pretty badly. And you know, I was always very protective of my face. If I was ever going to fall down, I knew to kind of fall in such a way that it was not on my face and not where I would damage anything, uh, which ironically throughout my later life never really happened. But uh, as a kid, I knew to protect that. So that was the first situation. The second time it did get physical was when I was probably 13. I actually got into a fight with another girl in the lunchroom. She claimed I was sitting in her seat. And at that point, I think I was in my angry stage, which is ironic because I don't consider myself an angry person. But (laughs) interestingly, through all of the therapy work, one of the first things my therapist said is, I have a lot of anger. And I defiantly and angrily said, no, I don't. (laughs) And I'm still working through that anger. And you you hate that therapist to this day. I'm not angry, you're angry. (laughs) I do, but I'm still also working with them. How can you have the life that I did and not be angry, you know, with with everything going on? And so with the girl in the lunchroom, it actually turned into a fist fight a little bit until the teachers came and woke us up. And I think I I may have actually gotten a little bit of a bloody nose and a big yelling at from my mother about protecting my nose. But a lot of the bullying was actually verbal. Uh, You know, I've been called names like Quasimodo, when I went to school once with bandages on my lip, the kids called me Hitler. Um, I was asked if I was, you know, kicked in the face by a horse. My mother got kicked in the stomach when she was pregnant. The worst part that I can remember is in the schoolyard. I overheard two parents talking when I was waiting to be picked up. My mother picked me up. Parents, you know, saw me and they says, "Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad she was. I'm glad she wasn't my daughter. I would have left her at the hospital." And all I can remember thinking at that moment was, you know, I'm glad I'm not your daughter either. So <laughs> it was, I was just. A, I was about to say kids are so mean, but I guess uh, adults are as well. And I, yeah. I, I actually have an experience that I'm not going to share. It's not has any doesn't have anything to do with me, but of hearing the way an adult talk about a child when I was 12 years old, just completely blowing my mind that an adult could have bad things to say about a kid especially when it wasn't because the kid was a shithead or anything. It was right. actually regarding the, the kid's sexuality. He was about 12 years old and very effeminate, and I'm not going to get into that. But you've mentioned a couple times protecting your face. So yeah. I do have a follow-up there. Are, is, your, is, is the area, your, your lift palate, nose area, is it, What's the word I'm looking for? I, I want to say fragile. I, I don't know the right word. Is, but it, is it more susceptible to injury? There we and, go. Uh, I, it's not that it's more susceptible anymore than maybe yours is, but the issue is that if you break your nose, you know, it's probably easier, you know, if you're tolerant enough of the pain to just kind of put your nose back in place and everything's okay. You know, if you fall down and not get a tooth and go to the dentist and either they can just put a crown on it or maybe, you know, an implant and everything is okay. For me, if I break my nose because of the reconstructive surgery I had, it's not as easy to repair or, you know, to, to put back in place. And if I not got a tooth, well, all of my upper teeth are all implants and they're not individual posts of the implants. It's a com- complex bridge work, 
with, uh, you know, the back molars being into my natural bone. I have no bone in the front. So they had to do kind of a, a hybrid bridge work that were implants with posts that were in all different places. So if I were to fall down and knock out my upper teeth, it would be a disaster that would require probably a whole team of dentists, again, to repair and replace. And I know I've been using that term repair and, and it just sometimes still comes naturally to me <laughs> uh, and to fit. So that's why I've always been very protective of my face. And that makes perfect sense. Uh, understandable. And even if it wasn't like that, nobody wants to go through. I mean, you've been through 20 plus surgeries, you've said at this point. How many of those came, came during childhood? Well, that's a great question. So I had probably about 15 of those surgeries during childhood. Most of them, like I said, my first surgery was when I was about two months old six and seven months old is when I had the majority of them. Then it was a little bit of a break while everything healed, some dental work. 12, 13, I had another one. Um, it was to remove, you know, some extra scar tissue. That was right before I went into high school. And then again, a long break. And then I had, when I was in my 20s, right before I aged out of my parents' insurance, I had another surgery. And that was it until about my early 30s. And I had another, I had two, two bone grafts, which were needed because I had no natural bone in my upper teeth. So I had another one when I was in my early 30s. That was my second bone graft I needed for my implants. And that was the last surgery I've had. Like I said, a combination of surgeries for causing the palate, the lip, uh, reconstructing the nose, removing scar tissue, making the upper lip a little more pliable to be able to you know, have the flexibility in there. I also had surgery for tubes in the ears, tubes out of the ears. Uh, you name it, I think I've been through it. <laughs> so the bullying occurred in your childhood and through high school, it sounds like. But did it continue after high school? Absolutely. It was all through college. But, you know... As you age and as, you know, society, I mean, you get older, the bullying changes. It was not the name calling that I experienced in elementary school and, you know, junior high school, seventh, eighth grade. In high school, it was a little bit more sinister. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school, and then you would think that going to an all-girls, especially a Catholic high school, there would be a level of acceptance, but I'll tell you, Girls can be extremely petty and nasty, and for lack of a better word, really, really bitchy. And that's when it really was difficult because, you know, you're high schooling. You're figuring out who you are, your teenage years. And then, you know, you want to be in the social circles. You want to be among the popular girls. And it was just really catty. I had one close friend, and that was it. But the bullying continued. It was more of, instead of the name calling, it was the silent treatment. It was eliminating me it was looking at me funny or it was the snarkiness asking me if I had a boyfriend yet when you know it was clear that I didn't I had trouble dating I mean I had trouble I had self-esteem self-worth issues there was no way I was even going to consider myself material you know good enough to be dating anybody and you know boys weren't even going to look at me and they didn't because boys didn't want to be seen with me so it continued there and even after high school in college it wasn't too bad in college, but it was also prevalent in the workplace. I faced a lot of workplace discrimination. Uh, you know, I got started working in business and company says, 
we can't hire you. We're worried about what the clients will think. We're worried about how you'll sound over the phone. We're worried about, you know, just are you, like, can you handle the job? Are you going to need more surgeries? All of these issues that I reassured them would not be a problem. I faced workplace discrimination. And even as recent as a couple of months ago, there was an issue where I can't go into too much detail because it's still, you know, in the process, but I'm an accounting professor. I'm a college professor. And I had an issue where there was still some workplace discrimination with my speech and my, you know, how I talk and being able to be understood. So it is something that, you know, society needs to be aware of and continue to change and become accepting. And, you know, I think that's only going to happen with more education and awareness. Yeah. And, for what it's worth, you do speaking engagements. I will say that there have been times when I haven't understood what you've said today. That has been 100% because of the internet. <laughs> there are, it's getting a little choppy right now. But I, I mean, it seems like, and I, and I don't know, I guess I'll ask you, do you feel like it is malicious or do you think it's just not knowing not understanding and being different um when i was younger and until i worked on myself and realized what i realize now i always thought it was personal i always thought it was malicious and i always thought it was because i was a monster i was the bad person I was, you know, the evil person. That was the story I told myself. Now, having a different level of understanding, I know that the bullying and the name calling and the stigma is because of fear. We fear what we don't understand, and we fear Mm -hmm. that which is different. And so to help deflect that fear, to help comfort us, we turn to whatever we can think of. You know, if somebody calls someone a, a negative name and bullies them, it makes them feel empowered and not necessarily in a good way. And it's not the right way to do it, but it gives them some level of power that gives them comfort and reduces that fear. And I think it just originates from, uh, you know, not knowing from ignorance and from not, you know, awareness. They don't, maybe somebody hasn't seen somebody with a cleft lip like me. They don't know what it's about. They have a lot of fear. And I think it's also a lot of discomfort. You know, I was very afraid. I mean, for the longest time, I could not see my own baby picture because it was so disturbing to me and it was so uncomfortable. And, and, you know, in some ways, I mean, I hate to say this, it was disgusting to me. I didn't want to acknowledge that was me. And it made me feel uncomfortable. And I understood if I feel that way, how would other people feel? And so taking that perspective and saying, okay, this is why they do that. I can understand it, but that's not an excuse for their behavior and their actions. And that's where, again, the education and the awareness comes in. Yeah. And I failed to say it earlier and I meant to, but when you said that you were angry, you know, a lot of us, most of us even aren't really taught how to deal with emotions or recognize what we're feeling and they can manifest in anger if you don't allow yourself to feel and process. But I think it's kind of the same on, on the other side, right? Is that kids are awkward. And I'm saying kids. I know this has gone into adulthood. But growing up, a, a lot of your classmates probably didn't know why they were doing it either. It was just a way to 
fulfills something that they were feeling, which it might be this is different, this is unusual, or their own self-identity. It's easier to make fun of someone else to make yourself feel better. So in a lot of ways, a lot of this is natural, I think, and and I'm sure that doesn't make it feel any better for you, though. It is so, natural, and again, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Well, I was just saying it is natural, and again, with a lot of you know more than ten years of therapy, I've learned to take a different perspective on it. Uh, I think the children were doing a combination of peer pressure. You know, one kid in school might have done it, and then all the others jump on the bandwagon. I think also, again, it's their own, like you said, their own emotions, not knowing how to process that someone looks different from them, not knowing at home that how to deal with it, maybe even examples from their parents. So for me, there was a lot of anger. I was never able to process those emotions. I never learned how to handle the emotions that I had. And I think, you know, again, helping children realize that, hey, we're all different and that's okay. And that level of acceptance is going to go a long way no matter what the children face, you know, no matter what the issue is. Sure. And do you think it's changing today? I mean, it, or, well, I guess let me back up. Let me back up just a second. And you are involved in kind of a community correct you do speaking engagements and things like that so are you meeting with other people at this point of your life that have cleft lips and palates mm-hmm. absolutely yes so i volunteer with smile train which is a global organization that they their main mission is to train medical professionals in other countries okay. to perform the surgeries for uh, people with cleft palate in those countries, but also as part of Smile Train's mission is that they're also working to strengthen and improve the cleft community in the United States. So I work with them uh, and a committee of other adults with cleft palate and parents of children with a cleft to help improve the communication and strengthen the community. And you know, talk about perfect timing. Uh, Smile Train has had their fourth annual. CleftCon, which is their annual conference uh, yesterday and Friday night. There's a virtual this weekend where about 150 people, we all get together online. It's an afternoon filled with sessions, workshops, talking about uh, you know, insurance issues, care for an adult with cleft, uh, resiliency, different issues that we have living with cleft, and even for parents of a child with a cleft. So I'm a very integral part of the community in Facebook and with Smile Train, and I'm also a confidence coach. I work with adults who have cleft lip impairment to help them improve their confidence, improve their self-esteem, improve their self-worth, and in addition to adults with cleft, I work with anyone that has a facial difference or issues with accepting their appearance. I love that. That that's awesome, and uh, it's it's amazing the things we learn. CleftCon, I, I would not have expected uh, an organization or an event like that, but that that sounds incredible. And I'm sure that the internet now has made things less hard. I'm not going to say easier, but 
when you can find your community somewhere and find information, I can only imagine that that makes it easier. Uh, I said easier this time, less hard for, for kids dealing with something like this. Um, it, it probably makes people feel like they're, they're not as alone as you might've felt not knowing any other kids with, with the same, uh, difference that you had is it would, would you say that the kids are able to, um, find more resources these days? Is, is, is it a different world for them? Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the internet because it was, it was two things or one thing really that helped me break out of my state of denial and begin my self-acceptance. You know, I didn't really accept my cleft until my late forties. I denied it. I, if you would have told me maybe 10 years ago that I would have been sitting here having a podcast that was going to go out on the internet, talking to you about my club, I would have said never in a million years. I also would have said never in a million years would I have given a TED talk talking about my club and palette and having that talk start with my baby picture. I mean, I always wanted to give a TED talk, but not about myself. Uh, and so For sure. the big catalyst was, it was, the death of my mother, you know, she passed in 2017. And when she died, oh, I was so alone and I was so lost. I didn't know what to do. She was the only person who knew what I was, what I truly went through. And so in that moment of loneliness, I turned to the internet and I just Googled cleft lip and palette on Facebook. I Googled cleft lip. I, it was curiosity. What's out there? You know, is there any more information? Anybody wrote any books about it? There was never any books at the time. And I found a Facebook group of only adults with a cleft lip and palate. And I joined the group. And that was the moment that everything started to change for me. You know, in that group at that time, it was maybe a little over 500 members. Uh, I was able to, you know, other people that were going through what I went through. We talked about our challenges. We understood each other. And then from there, I was realizing, okay, I'm not defective. I'm not broken. I'm not the monster I thought I was. Mm-hmm. And that helped me open up. And then from there, I got involved in Smile Train. And it was just kind of a progression, you know, little by little that I came to where I am today and continued the healing process. That, that That's amazing. And Christine, I'm going to apologize to you because I, you know, we've talked a lot about children uh, or your childhood and the way I framed that question a moment ago is, is it easier for, for children growing up? But clearly I didn't, I, I didn't realize, I, I knew your journey really took off in adulthood, but I did not realize it was so recently. So it sounds like even as an adult that, that the resources uh, are a lot different today and there's a lot of healing that probably has to be done for 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 many adults as, as well so I'm, I'm so happy you found that and i got goosebumps when you said that you found a page with people over 500 members that only had uh, or that all had uh the same experience or the same uh difference that you have because that that's an incredible thing finding your people um i'm big on finding community and that's an amazing thing. So can you tell us a little bit about your coaching then? Is that more for 
uh, adults or I'm mean, sorry, adults with cleft lips and palates, or is it for parents, or is it a little bit of both? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So I work with all clients who want to improve their confidence, their self-esteem, their okay. self-worth. They don't necessarily have to have a facial difference. Um, if they just feel, okay. you know, they're struggling with accepting themselves. Uh, I work with them. You know, I mean, it could just be maybe they don't like the color of their hair or they don't like that they have freckles or <laughs> they have, you know, I mean, anything it could be, I work with them to help them build that level of acceptance and say, hey, it's okay to look different and feel, you know, different and to have to build that acceptance and that confidence that even though you look different, you're still welcome in the world and you still have a lot to offer. Uh, I work mostly with adults who have a club and I've also helped parents overcome the shame that they feel around their children who have a cleft mm-hmm. or who have, you know, a, a facial difference. Uh, because again, for parents, it's also so hard. They, they have this child and all parents are proud of their babies. And then to have a baby that, you know, has this facial difference and have to explain it or have to field the questions and, you know, being involved in the community and having several parents who are great friends, I understand their pain. I've heard their pain. I've heard, I've seen what they go through. And then for parents to see their child go into the surgery, and you know, even though I don't have any children of my own, I can understand what they must feel when they have to see their child hurting through surgery, hearing their stories when their child comes out after surgery, and you know, is crying because of the pain or you know the recovery, and then having to go through it again. And then as for the adults, yeah. I work with them to help them build that confidence. You know, growing up. Like I did the major issue that I think we all have when we have that facial difference is the fear of rejection and the fear of not fitting in. It's something that we struggle with. So I helped to build, uh, you know, how to not take everything personally, how to, you know, feel that, we okay, we have that confidence to go out there, be a sort of advocate for what we want and realize that we have a lot to offer. And you certainly do, Christine. I'm speaking to you specifically. I think all humans have a lot to offer, but hearing hearing what you're saying, it it sounds like you have an, an incredible wealth of knowledge and life experience that is very, very helpful for, for others. But I can't help but notice, and I, I, I hope I heard you correctly, Actually, I hope I didn't hear you correctly, but did you say that parents feel shame of having children with this um, difference? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Unfortunately, they do. I mean, I know my mother never talked about her feelings of um, when she had me and that I had the cleft lip and palate. But like I said, I, I talked to a lot of parents, um, children with cleft. I spent time I had the pleasure of going to Kenya through Smile Train, where I spent a week there with other adults with a cleft and a mother of a child with a cleft. And just getting to know them personally, one-on-one, my work with Smile Train, knowing the parents, the uh, comments that I hear from parents repeatedly is they feel guilty that they somehow caused the problem, the cleft in their child. They feel guilty that they it was their fault. And then they feel the shame. You know, they show pictures of their baby and instead of people saying, oh, what a cute baby, the first comment is, what's wrong with their face? Or it might be a comment, well, they can fix that. And that's not something that anybody wants to hear, let alone a parent of a baby. And 
you know, I, I, there was an incident that happened earlier this year. It was about May or June. A mother posted her, she posted a baby picture of her son when he was a couple of days old before he had his surgeries to close his cleft lip. And she commented on how beautiful he was. She loved his eyes and his chubby cheeks. And she posted it on Facebook. And Facebook pulled the picture and cited that it was offensive. And they, you know, pulled it. She was at work when she got the message that they pulled the picture and it was offensive. She reposted it again a couple of hours later and said, well, I'm going to try posting this again and see what happens. And it stayed up and, you know, it made the rounds to our community. And I actually wrote a blog post about it and why Facebook pulled the picture. And they have been talking to her and her son is now five years old. And so the picture was kind of like one of those flashbacks, but her son is five years old. And she said it still to this day, five years later, heard her that Facebook or somebody reported the picture as offensive. He was an adorable little baby picture. And yeah, he had a cleft lip, but that doesn't make him an offensive baby picture. And it just shows the ignorance around it. And it, like she said, it brought back all the shame she felt the day he was born and it was just really difficult. And so that's a lot of things that parents go through, again, is that acceptance, that shame, and the fear of, is their baby going to be okay? The surgeries, not knowing mm-hmm. what they're going to have to go through until they get educated about the cleft lip power and all the um, you know, surgeries and the medical issues around it. And even with that knowledge, you had surgeries up until your 20s. It's not, uh, I'm sorry, I... I I don't know when they ended. I, I, you may have mentioned I did not take note, but into adulthood is what I meant. It's not like it's a surgery or two surgeries and it, it's it's over. But Christine, what would you tell your twelve-year-old self if you could talk to her today? Oh, that's a great question. There's so much I would probably tell her. Oh. I would tell her that it's all going to be okay. That's the biggest thing that I was always so worried about was, is it, is it going to be okay? Am I going to make it through? Am I going to survive? You know, what am I going to, am am I going to be accepted in society? Am I going to be accepted in the world? So I would tell her to just keep pushing forward, keep being herself. Don't let the, you know, bitterness and the anger take off when it never did. Uh, you know, it's just not who I am, uh, you know, and just that it would be okay, that there was always hope because, again, looking back now to where I am now and where I was and how I how I felt growing up, I just, I never would have thought that my life would have taken the turn that it did. And it was by no means easy. There was a lot of suffering involved along the way. But what I've learned is that all of the experiences I had made me who I am today. They gave me the experience that I can share with others. And they gave me the resiliency that I have, the determination and the knowledge that I can help others and inspire others. All right. Well, you know what I'd tell Chris, the 12 year old Christine, I would tell her that I just interviewed adult Christine on video with audio. I wouldn't say for a podcast because she wouldn't know what that is yet. Um, but I would say that we just talked on video over audio and I think I wouldn't have to say any more, uh, for her to realize just how far that you've come. Um, it's been incredible today, Christine. I'm, I'm so happy you've come on with us. If, 
someone wanted to get in touch with you or get get your coaching services, where would they find you? Absolutely. So they can find me on the web. My website is pristineerico.com. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, you know, so my page is Coach Christine Erico or christineerico.com. I also have my own Facebook group. Uh, you know, just Google uh, or go on Facebook, look for the Facebook group, uh, Cleft Lip and Palette Community for Adults. It's for parents of children with a cleft. It's for adults with a cleft. It's for medical providers. It's more of a general support group. The adult support group is, you know, called Affected Adults, and then there's always Smile Train. So if you just Google me, you'll come up. You'll also find my TED Talk that's on my website where I talk a little bit more about my uh, journey growing up, my trip to Kenya, where I got to meet some other uh, children and teenagers with a club. And so, yeah. Awesome. And we'll make sure to put all of that up on our site and just and in the show notes. Sorry, I'm stumbling yeah, those through my be- words. In the show notes uh, uh, associated with your picture there, right in the show notes, Christine. For sure. So we will make sure our listeners know how to find that. And I guess this has been great, Christine. Uh, I'm so happy you came on today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, and I really appreciate the opportunity. All right, for sure. And thank you so much again. You've been an amazing guest. And uh, as always, I I have to say it, you've passed the decent fucking human test. You're doing great work out there, not just for you, but for a lot of other people. We're grateful. We're honored and humbled in all of those fun words uh, by your willingness to, to come on and share your story, not with just Dan and I, but also with our terrible listeners. Uh, and to terrible listeners, I always forget to say this, but I'm going to today. Remember to like us on our socials. We're at Positively Terrible. Uh, remember, I'm still paying for decent fucking human tattoos. So if Nobody's you want going to get one. Oh, I've already got that. But you know what? I'm not even, I'm just going to send you pictures very soon, Dan. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so follow us, like us, share all of our stuff. It's incredibly helpful when you do. Um, and as always, today has been absolutely, positively terrible. I met you back at Fest. I confess I was nervous and stressed because I thought you were the
Positively Terrible is a part of the Terrible Podcast Network.